You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. Fans of the show know her as Nurse EpiPen, but today we are calling her Legend! You see, Nurse Epipen, yeah, legend. You've just come back from cycling fifty thousand kilometres around New Zealand. I can see your muscles are aching, your legs are chafing, but you've struggled into the studio this morning because this is a show you just did not want to miss. This is a great show we've got lined up today. Can I just give a quick plug to the Otago Trail in New Zealand? Yeah, you just have. Yeah, well, I did. Well. (laughs) Eleven of us did this trip and it was so much fun. Four days of bike riding, not too hard. Fitness, great fun, great conversations. Up every day, off you go again. Divine. Uh, And that was Nurse EpiPen. Um, Now, one of the reasons you've cycled across the Tasman is for our first guest because we will be speaking with Dr Jenny Phillip who is the freshly minted Professor of Palliative Care at St Vincent's Hospital and the VCCC, which is the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, which is somehow affiliated with Peter Mac, and I'll ask you to clarify that because I always stuff it up and we always get emails about it. Having scaled the lofty heights of academia, Prof Philip will now tarnish her reputation by appearing on our show and with us, mixing it up with the less cerebrally gifted medicos. Jenny will be telling us just what palliative care is. I'm actually still not sure after 30 years in medicine and why we should all know about it. Our second guest used to be a regular panellist on the show till she got seduced by the hospitals and the slaw slamming matches in Texas. I still have that email, Penny. Um, <laughs> then our resident infectious disease specialist moved to Geelong so she could be closer to the footy team, uprooting her family and saddening her friends. But this morning, Dr. Penn E. Sillen is back in the swivel chair talking about a fairly hot topic immunizations she'll be giving us the facts the statistics the stairs which she's doing right now and some of the clinical trials no clinical details about the diseases the jabs prevent she'll also be letting us in on what the e in pen e stands for you've got about 30 seconds to think about it all this uh the latest in medical media and uh, some music thrown into it's going to be a great hour here on radiotherapy we've already said hello we've heard the voice of nurse epipen Hello, Penny Sillen. Good morning, Mal, and I feel like I'm really making a cameo appearance and I was really happy that you sort of prefaced it by saying less terribly gifted, so I feel like the pressure's <laughs> really off today. And I haven't figured out what the E is because now that I'm less terribly gifted... You've forgotten. I've completely forgotten. Yeah, yeah. it's good when you set a low bar because you, know, you just have to jump very high. But you're just not expecting much. Been doing it my entire life. Good, <laughs> good morning, uh, Doctor. Oh, sorry, Professor Jenny Phillip. Thank you so much for coming. And how did we twist your arm? What happened there? Oh boy, um, I went to uni a yeah. long time ago with Steve Allen, who's uh-huh, one of our panelists. Alter ego. I'm not sure what his name is, but <laughs> it's uh, Doctor Doolittle. Doctor Doolittle, because <laughs> <laughs> that's what he does. <laughs> well, that rings bells. But thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really pleased to have you on the show because there are lots of questions uh, I've been wanting to ask, and I've actually been preparing, which is rare for me for this show. Ah. Now. EpiPen, you had your hand up. Oh, I was just going to ask um, Pen E. Sillen, um, how long it, with your connection with this show from years back? Well, my memory, and, you know, I hope that I don't give you a date that <laughs> predates the onset of the show because that could be a little inaccurate, but my memory was 1998. Oh, uh, wow. 
And they called me an expert, but I was actually only in my first year of training in this field. So I was glad to be recognised as an expert way but back then. do you know the definition of an expert is somebody that knows 1% more than you because you don't know that they know that 1%. They just know more. Right. And the other thing is that predominantly everybody on the show was a psychiatrist, so I knew that I knew 1% oh, more than them. Way more medicine than us. Yeah. But right. I've got a definition for an expert, yeah. somebody who carries slides and goes to meetings and talks. That's, that's an expert? Slides. Oh, slides. <laughs> How old is that Penny, definition? Penny, they don't carry slides anymore, darling. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so uh, we were going to talk about fake. Yeah, I, I, I thought that a good theme for a little bit of a chat today was about things that are fake. Yeah. And, and in that I wanted to bring up a couple of things, fake news, fake doctors and fake medicine. Mm. And I'm happy to – which which one of those do you want me to start rolling with, Mel? I reckon I reckon fake doctors because that's just fascinating yeah. how this happened. I can't believe this story. I really can't. So you probably heard in the news in New South Wales they found out not so long ago that there was a man who worked in hospitals for over a decade. In fact, I think they said 11 years um, and they found out later that he actually didn't have a medical degree. A lot of these hospitals he worked in, they weren't sort of the RPA, Royal North Shore. They were smaller centres, Gosford, Hornsby, Manly. And it is entirely possible that over a decade ago, because I was thinking about it in the context of healthcare in this country and about our reliance a decade ago on overseas trained doctors mm. because we, at that time, we didn't have all of these new junior doctors, doctors yeah. and, that, and that's when we started opening new medical schools. So at that time, retention of junior medical staff w- was potentially a problem at smaller centres. Do you know when I first heard the report, like there's been a doctor who, there's been a fake doctor working in Australian hospitals for 10 years, I was just waiting to hear the word Dr. Shivago. <laughs> who's a mate of mine, the panellist on the show. But I think I knew ago. him in medical school, so I think I could vouch for the fact that he was Well, I was at his 50th last night, and they were talking about his medical school, and they said he did medicine by correspondence. He just didn't turn <laughs> up. So I thought, is he a real doctor or not? Um, so what I was going to say, that, that they've interviewed some people who worked with him in the hospitals. Some people said, yes, his knowledge was fairly shabby, when it came to medicine. Others said that they decided that they'd cut him some slack because he had to get used to the Australian medical system. Really? So whenever somebody brought up the fact that he didn't seem to know much, people said, oh, well, look, he needs to get used to our system. Be fair. So people have been talking about this issue, you know, with with major surprise and I suppose the three things that people are Mm. surprised about number one that this could actually happen in our system how is it that we don't check the credentials and the reality is that when you apply for a job Mm. as a junior doctor you usually don't have to give neither a copy of your degree nor a transcript of your university results. They ask you, are you registered? Yes. And you give them your CV, but you don't actually upload a formal degree. I thought you'd do. So you'd, oh, hang on. Not usually. Jenny? Having just been through this recently, um, actually it was quite um, vigorous. I remember it seemed to be a lot more vigorous than it used to be yeah. in terms of... Um, having to produce all those documents and the originals of those documents. Oh, really? So you, you have to do it? cited and signed oh, and that okay. sort of thing. So See, I wonder in, if that's in the wake of these sorts of things. Well, it may be, but the other thing is that there's different standards for senior doctors compared with junior doctors. So because I do a lot of junior doctor recruiting, they don't normally 
submit their actual degree. They have a CV that says mm. I graduated in mm. this year mm. from Queensland. Now there may be somebody else who asks them for it, okay. but because I've done a lot of recruiting with nobody else doing any of the recruiting, we don't usually cite the degree, okay. I have to say. But because I speak to references from all sorts of places, I sort of vouch for their performance at work. But how would you know if I say mine, let, let's just say I'm pretending to be a doctor, eh? Mm-hmm. My name's uh, Dr. Mal, and um, here are my referees, and, uh, you know, I give you all these paperwork. How do you know that I actually am Dr. Mal? I could yeah, be, that person. Because this person was in, in, an imposter of Dr. Yeah, somebody else, so I it? think that he would have shown a degree and said that this, this is, is me. I'm Dr. Yeah. Acharya, but he yeah. actually wasn't. Yeah. So that totally could happen as well. So, so I think that there's a couple of things that we know <clears throat> where, where there's possibly loopholes. Jen? Oh, I was just going to say that apparently the um, fellow there was a there is a doctor of that name who's in the UK yeah. who's subsequently been found out that he's been I'm not sure what the word is imposted or some or some yeah. such yeah. his identity has been taken Jeez. yeah and you know he's quite apparently quite traumatized yeah, as you would be yeah. yeah but but I suppose the other point that I wanted to make about this is so first of all it could happen the second thing was that people were surprised that um, how could patients not have been harmed in a major way and I, I thought that to a certain extent that overstates the the things that a junior doctor often does so. They, they get told what to do. And I know that when we've had even junior medical students working on our unit, we can give them instructions of things to do that are not highly technical, mm. that I wonder such, whether such a reasonably bright sort of teenager could do. Give, give us an example, such as... Run downstairs with this slip and give it to the radiologist. <laughs> That's why you study five years. Right. But even um, writing out, so you might pick up a spelling mistake, but there's... Quite a few dyslexic de- doctors that, yeah, that, that, and the pharmacist will pick it up and, yeah. you know, make sure it's the correct and, one. And, and what about and things ju- like putting in a drip? I mean, surely you would have to have seen that done. How did he get by with that? Because junior doctors put in heaps of drips. Right. So, so he may have been pretty hopeless at the first few, like we all were. But I, I'm saying there's a lot of people that put in IVs who aren't doctors. In America, they have IV teams mm. and they're not yeah. doctors. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of things that you probably <clears> pick <throat> up. And given that he did it for 11 years, I would say that's a fairly long apprenticeship. <laughs> at doing sort of menial tasks. And when somebody says, please write up the following drug, they say, please write up penicillin at a dose of 1.2 grams every however often. They're actually telling you what to write. So I actually think you can get away with a lot within that. And then the final thing I wanted to say is that medicine really is an apprenticeship. So this guy, he didn't go to the medical school, but he had a fairly long apprenticeship in the hospital. So do you think... In, seriously, do you think we could learn? I mean, there's lots we can learn mm-hmm. about vetting um, people applying for jobs and checking credentials and so forth. But do you think we could learn something more from that about, well, maybe we overtrain our students to do the job that they're employed to do as junior doctors? There was an article a couple of years ago by a prominent uh, medical school chief who said, the training that medical students currently have is like building a 747 to pick up the milk. Like they're overtrained, they're given too much uh, instruction in medical school. Because medicine is an apprentice, uh, an apprenticeship, maybe 
we're teaching them too much for the job they're doing and then they, they should be learning more on the job rather than before the job. Yeah, and I, and I think that's <clears> very <throat> true. And I, The other thing is when you tell somebody that you're doing psychiatry training, like yeah. I'm finishing my training in psychiatry, yeah. the layperson may assume that this training is some sort of rigorous writing of a thesis and that you're somehow, it's like studying the Bible mm. that you're reading through it. In fact, it's day-to-day work on the job, it's seeing patients yes, 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 as an yeah, apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of... That is the nature of medicine. And it, if you look back at sort of historic medicine, remember barbershop medicine yeah, yeah, and that yeah, yeah. sort of stuff, it was an apprenticeship. So you're like a bricky's labourer, basically, uh, as, a, as a resident in hospital when you're training. Pretty much. So I'm a doctor's labourer. But you were say. required to get better results in high school. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's interesting because, yeah, I think you do have that sense of things. So what about the mentoring of registrars or consultants might not be the same? So I think it raises that issue about the stress of some of the young doctors and mm, the suicides. Sure, sure, sure. So they're carrying a lot of pressure and it might be the different levels and communication skills of senior people that lead to this extra stress. And, and I think the other thing is, the other thing about the apprenticeship nature of it is um, can be seen in the fact that medical school previously was six years traditionally in Australia and now it's comfortably four at a postgraduate level. But the undergraduate degree in a lot of these universities could be an arts degree, so it didn't have to include any medical content. Can I, can I sorry, just on that point. So I, I taught uh, overseas um, to a group of postgraduates where you could get in doing arts or poetry or uh, into medicine um, or zoology and I've got to say, those students who had done that performed way better in the tutes that I gave than the, than the students who did straight sciences because they came at it from another point of view. That's right. They were right. open-minded. That's right. And, and certainly the medical school that I'm affiliated with, which is postgraduate, we've got people who come in from a journalism background oh, and they're fabulous. Yeah, when you yeah. ask them to present a history, they present <laughs> it. It's also, you know, the cyclone came at 8.50am. They know every detail. Yeah. Menstruation commenced at 8am on their 12th birthday. So, so the... They really come at it from a different angle and you realise that the knowledge of the Krebs cycle that we learned in biochemistry is <laughs> not, not, not that important. We had to dissect a dogfish. We spent like two months dissecting it. It was basically a shark. What? Yeah, I was going to say, what it's, is a dogfish? It's just like a shark. It was ridiculous. I mean, what a waste of time. I think so much of what we do is not applicable. It's applicable to being like a... Maybe not forget about the dog about the dogfish. It's a, a lot of what we do is applicable if you want to become a pathologist or a radiologist. But most people, or whatever, but a lot of people will start off as being an intern, and we need to train people to be interns and residents, and then train them to be the specialists or generalists they're going to be. I wonder if, however, though, there's a thing. A lot of the intern um, tasks are fairly menial, as, as yeah. you've said, but I do wonder if. Um, there's a, a problem-solving approach that is what is taught and the basis for that problem-solving mm, approach, in which case when things are tricky, that there's a method around which you can think things through, which is not a menial task. That's a more drawing upon a, I don't know, a methodology or whatever it might be in order to, you know, find a way so through. So what you're saying is that their problem um, appears and because of their training, interns will have... They may not have the answer, but they'll have an approach to finding the answer. Should we then not be teaching medical students more about critical problem solving and critical analysis and, you know, root cause analysis rather than, 
the Krebs cycle, not that they learn. Well, but, but I think they are heading in that direction. It's very clinically applicable. So instead of saying, I'm going to tell you everything about pneumonia, mm. while they do learn about pneumonia, instead they learn about a patient who's short of breath. So, so that it's more applicable to day-to-day medicine when you're faced with a patient who has a particular symptom or affliction. So we shouldn't, like, we shouldn't underestimate what good things are taught in oh, medical no, school. Yeah, of course, but, of course. but it, it's moving better. more and more to, I think, more practically clinically orientated. Yes, yeah, but I think where we can all agree, though, is that medicine is an apprenticeship. Absolutely. And the more time you spend looking after real patients... The better. Can we agree with that? Yeah. So, so they. I think they say, and it's not just in medicine. You need about ten thousand hours in yeah, something to get a degree of expertise. Now, I'm not going to argue about whether ten thousand is the right figure. I've I've, heard, I've actually read that study, um, and, and the basic premise is that to become an expert, you need ten thousand hours of reflective practice. So, you take anybody put them in front of a piano, give them 10,000 hours of playing and reflecting on their playing and reflecting on their mistakes and they'll be fantastic, they'll be expert. I'm not sure I believe that. You could put me in front of a piano for 15 million hours and I'm not going to be an expert. So it may not be applicable to everything. (laughs) (laughs) It may fall down in some areas. Uh, But I suppose, um, you know, I was hearing the other day, somebody was talking about the fact that you can do training in a specific field, be it psychiatry, palliative care, infectious diseases, whatever it is, and you could then get into a niche area from that, which you kind of, you know, sometimes it's more luck or you happen to be in the right place at the right time. Right, and they may say, do you want to run this clinic on X? And it may be something that you haven't specifically dealt with before, but probably 10,000 hours in that clinic would be kind of equivalent to gaining expertise in that field. And I, and I think that mm. that totally can happen in medicine. Mm. So an example that I heard last week was people who were asked to work in a paediatric club foot clinic, um, the physiotherapist. Club foot is a condition. A yep. condition that yep. children are born with yep. and the treatment in clinics is to put them in plasters yep. and then change yep. them every yep. week. And 10,000 hours would give you an enormous amount of expertise in something like that. Oh, I see what you mean. So yeah. I'm giving an example of a niche area where you can really get expertise yeah. in a short period of time as long as you have the basic building blocks. So basically we've solved the problem with medical education this morning in the last 15 minutes <laughs> and we, could sh- we should set up a radiotherapy school of, uh, of medicine. Wouldn't that be great? Postgraduate? Who would you take? Would you take in? Oh, here's a question for the panel. If you, if it was postgraduate, what sort of qualities, what sort of degrees w- would you want to have come into your medical school? Um, you said uh, journalism, which is good. Yeah, you know what? I think any degree, really. Okay. Yeah. Because why, why any degree? Uh, well, I just sh- it shows the capacity for independent scholarly work at, in any particular topic, whether you did a science degree or mm-hmm. a commerce degree. You show the capacity for some independent learning rather than high school, where there's kind of you don't know how much is independent. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't totally agree with maybe IT background. So we've had a medical student recently come through our unit, and he was and he was young, but he just didn't have any personal skills. He just he couldn't talk and he couldn't relate to anything and we're very engaging and caring in our unit at the Alfred Hospital but I just felt we all sat back and thought that he might struggle with medicine. But that may not relate to what his previous degree was so you ask about what degree but then there's what do you look for at interview and what you look for at interview is stuff like how personable they are, how good their communication skills are. Uh, Yeah absolutely what about you Jenny what do you think what degree would you like to see in I, I don't think I'd specify a degree. Okay. I 
Um, they need to be smart and they need to be, as as was said, personable and, and interested, I guess curious. Um, mm, curious, a, yeah. A good thing. But you've got to have a degree to get in. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. A postgraduate <laughs> yeah. degree. A, a degree. A, a degree. degree, yeah. So I'm going to go for poetry or creative writing. It's something like which is really kind of broad, something which shows that you can engage with philosophy of ideas, I reckon. But it also means that you can take some complex ideas and try and put them down in, in a See, meaningful way. So you just said that better. Which means you'd, you'd get into <laughs> my thanks. course. You'd get into thanks. my course. Stay tuned because we'll be speaking with Prof Jenny Phillip about palliative care in about mm, three minutes. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Hey, Penny, for an apology. Um, this is EpiPen, and I do wish to apologise to the IT community about that terrible generalisation, so apologies. I'm sorry. Good for you. Um, prof, <laughs> I'm just trying to think. It's always hard to know what to go. What, do people give you an appellation? Do they say Prof? Do they say Doctor? Do they say Jenny? What do they, what do they call you? What should I call you? Jenny. 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 So just tell us, you are newly um, installed as the Professor of Palliative Medicine, is mm-hmm. that right? That's correct. It's the VCCC Professor of Palliative Medicine. Right. Now tell us what that means and then we might get into your job and what palliative care is all about. So this is a new mm-hmm. position. Um, you may know that the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre is a, a new centre. It's um, a big building. It's a big building, yeah. It's a beautiful building. It's uh, absolutely stunning inside as well as interesting outside. It's on the top of, um, what is it? what's that street called? Grattan, Grattan Street. Grattan Grattan street it's where yeah. the old dental hospital used right. to be. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's a, a new building and um, within that is a number of um, institutions. So um, Peter McCallum has moved there. And as you may know, the cancer services of Peter McCallum have amalgamated with those of the Royal Melbourne for the clinical care. Oh, right, right. But there is, um, the VCCC is sort of bigger than that as well. It's an amalgamation of a number of clinical partners mm. um, and research partners to come together to improve cancer research, improve cancer care. So the VCCC is the umbrella kind of organisation. Under it sits Peter Mac, Royal Melbourne and a whole lot of other institutes. Yep, that's correct, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so no more emails, please, from VCCC because I stuff it up every time. And so this is a new... But I find that surprising that we wouldn't have had a Professor of Palliative Care at one of Melbourne's kind of leading institutes. Well, so there has been in the past um, Professors of Palliative Medicine Right. Um, but not for some years. And oh, okay. there are professors of palliative care in different disciplines, but this is a, a new position within the VCCC and it's Professor of Palliative Medicine. So it's very exciting yeah. and um, lots of new opportunities. And, you know, terrific that this has been included as up there and important mm. as part of cancer care. So what do you do? <laughs> I feel very busy a lot of the time. <laughs> Um, so I do some clinical care and yeah. I also do research and training in, in um, aspects around palliative care. Right. Now, I, I was having a chat with uh, Dr. Doolittle last night and we we're both saying palliative care, palliative medicine, it just, I, I still don't know what that means. Could you sort of uh, explain what that actually is? Um, well, it's a relatively new area or specialty, mm. I guess, and in some ways it's it's... The tasks are not that new. They're probably the traditional tasks of medicine that we've always done. Mm. But perhaps they've lost some of their um, 
focus or um, you know, we've got caught up with um, lots of things which are important things like you know, curing diseases and those sorts of mm. things. Um, but there is this task of caring for people whose diseases can't be cured mm-hmm. and um, we need to do that and bring all the rigour of our best thinking and our best research and our best training to caring for people when their cancer or whatever the illness may be can't be cured. So when you say to palliate somebody, that what does that actually mean? I mean, I'm trying to get to the etymology of the word. Well, the etymology of it is that palli- pallium <clears throat> is, means to cover or to cloak. Right. So I guess um, drawing that out a bit further, it means that you are covering up, perhaps covering up the... Um, the effects of an illness mm. or um, doing one's best to try to improve, say, pain or whatever mm. it might be mm-hmm. in order to help people live as well as they can. Mm-hmm. And I think in day-to-day, you know, for the non-palliative care physician, we look at it as comfort measures to improve all the symptoms that somebody has without curing the disease. And in, in the knowledge that what's quite incredible is that palliative care can improve survival compared with standard care for a lot of diseases. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, there's some stunning research coming out. We've known for a long time that palliative care can, um, you know, specific attention to symptoms can improve pain control or um, nausea or whatever the symptoms may be. Um, Also improve quality of life because it's not just symptoms that cause trouble you know, when we're all living, we've got much more than just our illnesses that mm. we're trying to live with. But some fascinating data that actually doing these things can improve how long you live and people have been shown to live you know, longer um, with palliative care than with usual cancer care only. Could you give us an example of, just one small example, I'm sure there are millions you could give us, of what you do when somebody needs palliative care? Um, so if someone comes to me, I want, uh, I could... Tell a story, would that be yes, helpful? Yes, of course, of course. Um, so maybe of a woman who is a young woman, um, I'll call her maybe Annie or okay. um, just to change some details, sure. but she's a young woman, single mum, who has a, a bad cancer mm. in terms of fairly active cancer. Mm. Um, she had a number of treatments um, which she was, you know, valiantly um, going mm. through and... and um, had some symptoms and I saw her at, from different times during that, that mm. course just to try and help her nausea. She had a little bit of pain. Mm. Um, and over that time, uh, you know, we talked about what, what matters for her, what's the important things, and she talked about curing and beating mm. the cancer and, and we talked about how that was, you know, an important thing and all her healthcare people would line up behind her and really work with her on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about other things, whether there was other things in addition that she might hope for. Mm. And uh, she hoped to be a good mum. Mm. And uh, throughout the course of her illness, um, we saw her from time to time and came back to some of those conversations from time to time. Um, up until when things started to get really tough and the cancer had come back a couple of times. And um, she had to go through things such as making a will, but also having difficult conversations about the ongoing care for her son when she when she was going to die. So people have to do and think through very real things at mm. this time of life. Um, and she did that with support and um, 
it was difficult, but also um, once she'd done it, it was helpful. She, you could see that she was relieved in some ways mm-hmm. that her son was going to be well looked after. And, and she lived the last part of her life. She decided that she really wanted to be at home and she had an army of sisters who were um, fabulous and, and deeply involved in, in her care and also in that of her son who helped care for her at home. She had community supports mm-hmm. coming in. She had a terrific GP. And I saw her, actually. I went to see her, sort of, it was, ended up being not so long before before she died. Mm. And I um, I went, there was a few things that needed to be addressed, but also it was partly for me, I think, to say goodbye. But, um, you know, she was set up at home. She had a bed. She was looking out onto the backyard. And it was raining. It was one of the really rainy days. And listening to the rain, she was sort of pretty sleepy. And it actually turned out that that was the last few days of her life. Um and I didn't stay long, but her son was sort of sleeping at the end of a bed. Sisters were all making cups of tea and um, cooking and all those sorts of things. So it was a really, um, it was a house where there was dying, but there was also sort of living, I guess, at mm. the same time. Anyway, um, I, I left, I didn't stay long and, and left quite soon after. And, and I was reflecting back on that. She did die subsequently a few days later. And I was reflecting back on that and um, reflecting about how how she had made decisions and, and lived her life really according to her life plan, even though she was um, working hard to, do, to live as long as she could. And uh, I've no doubt that she was really a great mum in mm. all of that too. Mm. So it's interesting that people can do and achieve important things um, and grow even at that time of life. And, but I think your description really tells all the listeners about how palliative care really I think embodies one of the most human sides of medicine and when we talk about how medicine has both a science and an art all of these things that you referred to are a lot about the art of communication and interpersonal relationships with patients which were perhaps 30 years ago maybe weren't valued as much as what they are now and how important it is to have someone medical who is still across all of these very human aspects of death and dying. And so, um, Jenny, how do you manage the patients that have chronic pain, are elderly, that don't want to live, that don't want to be around for very long? So I think um, that there is a number of things that, that behoves us all to do and and those would be to bring the best of what we can to try to improve pain and symptoms if, if they are causing or interfering with how a person's living. Um, if people are expressing a wish that they've had enough or that they don't want to live, um, we need to explore that. And sometimes, in fact, most commonly it is just the, a sense of completeness and that, you know, really I've lived a full life and now it's time, you know, I've, I've had enough. And then um, it's an opportunity to talk about, well, what things are they doing or what decisions are they making that might be extending their life in a way that they don't think is valuable and talk through those things. And people can and do make lots of decisions. And um, I guess you sit with people and and try to explore those things as best one can. Do you know, as you were relating that story... um it brought to my mind how uh, we are more and more, thankfully, putting patients at the centre of uh, treatment, whereas it used to be medicine was very uh, 
patriarchal, is that the right word? Like yeah. we would tell people what to do and you must comply with our uh, instructions. And the, the, you know, the, me- the, the model was you have an illness, we have a treatment, take it. Uh, and psychiatry is very much, hopefully, uh, moving in the direction of patient-centred care. So we might say, look, <clears throat> in psychiatry, we've got these tablets that can help you. Um, and we're pretty sure they will. And the patient might say, well, look, I get that they will help me, but I don't like the side effects. I'd actually prefer to have some of these symptoms than all those side effects. So I'm not going to take all the tablets you tell me. And I'm, I'm breaking it down to a very, very um, sort of uh, basic level. But in the old days, you'd just say, well, no, you've got to take the tablets. Now we say, well, okay, we'll engage in that conversation. That's fair enough. You know, you're the boss, you know. And uh, obviously this is something that you do every day because that's what palliative care is about. Yeah, the thing I love about palliative care is that the goals of care are what the person says mm. they are, really, because quality of life is around, um, you know, what you think is, is important to you as opposed to what I think is important to you. And so, and so, in a way, that's a bit different. It's not a disease that's directing, you know, how mm. often you should do this or mm. what you should, when you should be visiting or those sorts of things. It's really, you know, what, what's the main thing for me at this time. Tell us about some of your research. Um, well, I'm interested in how we best integrate palliative care. Um, uh, Penny was talking before or asked before about some of the evidence around um, mm. palliative care improving quality of life but also improving length of life. Mm. And there is some interesting data also about the um, that there are um, public health effects as well. For example, in the US, in a, a large study of couples... The people um, and where one of the couples has died, the survival of the spouse is improved for those who had access to what they call hospice care compared to usual. So, so having the death of a spouse is actually a, um, uh, raises one's risk mm. of, of mortality oneself. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's not just um, only from um, depression or mm. bereavement, but actually from other physical mm. illnesses as well. But actually palliative care seems to have some protective effect. So it's fascinating what all this means. And my research is really around how we integrate palliative care to make it just part of, um, you know, best quality care. care. Yeah. yeah, and and this comes back to the point of our, how great it is that that palliative care has been is up there and part of you know things like the V Triple C, because this is starting to um, become a bit more part of the conversation. Yeah. It's not sort of out there and you know the other. It's starting to be a bit more part of just good what we do. So, do you think that um, because palliative care is very much about patient centred care at the moment, it seems. Um, that it, it's, it is confined or its remit is to people with incurable diseases. Do you think there'll be an, a, an occasion or a time where the, the aspects of palliative care will move beyond that to just general care? Yeah, well, it's fascinating to think, isn't it? I mean, I think that aspects <clears throat> of palliative care should be and have always traditionally been part of just good general care. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's really where we should be going. Uh, that, that's, sorry, um, that's, don't you think that's... That's why I'm thinking a name change to patient-centred care rather than palliation. Yeah, well, you know there's, a big, there's a big thing about personalised medicine, isn't it? Yeah. In a way, this is personalised medicine yeah. taken to the hilt. Yeah. I think the only thing is that um, palliative care has had a bit of a bad rap in the sense of, of course, it's associated yeah. with, um, in some people's minds, with, with death and dying, and, and, you know, we don't want to talk about that. 
And so... That's why I reckon you change the name. Yeah. And you go to patient centre care. And some people think that it means euthanising. So I think that there might be just a lack of understanding about what it actually um, involves. But I think what we do every day in medicine, just to sort of somehow disagree with you just a little, what we do every day in in medicine is patient-centred care. Not just because people are dying, but it's supposed to be patient-centred at all times. So people say, look, I know I'm supposed to take my diuretic Mm -hmm. for my heart failure, Mm -hmm. but I actually really don't like it when you give it to me in the afternoon because I have to go to the bathroom Mm -hmm. all the time in the evening. Can you change it? So we do try and Mm. personalise things to make Mm. it more patient-centred. So I think we kind of do do that. Uh, yeah, we could have a long discussion about that, but then I'd be eating into your segment, and I really don't want to be doing that. And I uh, really don't want you to either. <laughs> but we should continue this, maybe next time. Um, Jenny, we could speak with you for a long time. Thank you so much for coming in. Stay in that seat, if you wouldn't mind, because coming up, we've got some good music, but we've also got... I've been hanging out for this segment. It's a segment on immunisation. I'm going to learn something, because I've stuffed up my kids' immunisation form last week, and I got a very pleasant email from the immunisation nurse saying... Mal, you should do X, Y, and Z. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Penny Sillan, you haven't told us what the E stands for. Have you thought thought about it? Extraordinary. Excellent. Enthusiastic. Enthusiastic. You are. It's probably a better quality. Enthusiastic. Enigmatic. Enigmatic. Aww. Thank you. That's why so we have smart. you here. She's a professor. <laughs> she's a professor. She knows. So I was going to, we were going to talk about some aspects of vaccination. Mm-hmm. And I thought I might start off by just giving a little bit of historical context. Um, because I think sometimes mm-hmm. when we're sitting where we are now in 2017, we may be, you know, we don't all know about what it was like over a century ago or a century ago. So I thought I might just take a little bit of a historical look at vaccination and I thought the things maybe to keep in mind were the fact that in the 1900s there were diseases that frequently caused death either in children or adults but often in children that we just don't see anymore so one example would be smallpox which has now been eradicated and it's essentially been eradicated all over the world there were a couple of cases in the last couple of decades but there's, it's essentially, really? yeah, mm-hmm. but, but they were very isolated cases. So it's essentially an eradicated disease and it didn't get eradicated for any other reason other than vaccination. I think that's just a fact. But other things like um, measles, which you probably know up until the late 60s, it was a normal part of childhood for the majority of people to have yep. measles. And that's why, it. right, and that's why when we look back and we decide after which year people needed to be vaccinated. Mm. You're sort of, if you were born after about 65 or 67, Mm. you should be vaccinated. But before that, it was assumed that you had natural immunity to measles. And measles immunisation came in in 68, 69, and that's dramatically altered the amount of measles, so much so that we are at the point that Australia is essentially measles-free from the point of view of homegrown measles. Most of the measles that we see is essentially imported. So what I mean by that is usually people who have come here from overseas, either as students or tourists, and weren't immunised. But within our own population, we've got a good degree of immunity. So do we have enough 
herd immunity to stop that spreading? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So the theory is that you need, and measles is a really good example, you're supposed to have about 92 to 94% of the population vaccinated to get adequate herd immunity and that's why the community standard is set at 95% or more to keep in line with the fact that you needed at least 92 to 94% vaccinated. So if we've got 94% vaccinated, if somebody comes in from, say, overseas with measles, it won't spread like wildfire through That's exactly that right. Gotcha. And when you hear about measles outbreaks that do happen from time to time, when you look, because it is so highly contagious, when you look at the public health investigation into it, they look at things like, you know, where did this person come from? And you'll probably see if you read up on any of these... They then put out, you know, a message saying if you happen to be at Tullamarine Airport on the 3rd of July between 9am and whatever time in this terminal, in this place, you may have been exposed to measles. So they can actually put it down to a specific time and place. And there's usually, there may be some, the reason it's called an outbreak is because there are secondary cases beyond the single case that there was. But the reason that we don't get a hundred or two hundred yeah. cases is because we have enough herd immunity, yeah. but we do get cases amongst the people in that patient's close vicinity who aren't fully vaccinated. What, what about in places or countries where there isn't herd immunity? Are there major outbreaks of measles? Absolutely, oh. absolutely, and and the same can be said if you take polio as an example. Yeah. We've had polio vaccination for many years, and I can't remember the exact decade that polio vaccination came in. But first, we had. You know, we've had injectable, then oral, and now we've got injectable Salt, again. Sabin, yeah. Exactly. Um, oh, but is it back we, to injectable again? But it's or, you take it yeah. orally. What? But there is an injectable as well now. All right. Like yeah, they, they do talk quite, about in, yeah. oral vaccines. Yeah. I think it's a bit of a funny way to express that, but it's an oral. It's a vaccine that they take orally, so it's a little liquid come from an ampule, and then they take. Yeah, it. yeah, no, but but what I think what Penny's saying is that now. When, when polio vaccine first came out, it was the salt vaccine, yep. I think, and that was injection only. Mm. Then it moved to the... Sabin. Then it Sabin. moved to Sabin, which was drinking or tablet, and now it's moved back to... There, there is an injection. injectable available too, so there's both. So why would you use the injection rather than oral? Um, I can't... I can't specifically say okay. because there's some that are on the actual immunisation schedule for infants and there's others that you get when you're having catch-up immunisation. Oh, so you're getting an injection anyway type of thing? So. Well, I, I can't exactly say okay. why you'd use one over okay. the other. I have to admit ignorance on that front. But what I was going to say about polio is that we've essentially... It's eradicated from Australia. It's eradicated from many countries and there's just literally a few pockets where polio still happens, and it's a couple of countries in Africa, um, like Angola, for example, that has had outbreaks of polio. And I know even um, a couple of years ago, there are some countries where they say that you have to have had at least four doses of polio vaccine to go there. And Israel is included in that because they've had imported polio. I was just going to say that even in sort of not too distant past, my parents talk about when they were in primary school, if a child was absent for a couple of days, there would be this great fear that that they had polio, and you know that it's sort of oh. walking, talking normal kids would suddenly be sort of really cut down, mm. and and many died. It's mm. astonishing that even in our sort of you know, not distant contacts that this was a, a terrible disease in Australia. Mm. And there are certainly people that you see who are kind of older middle age now who've got the effects mm. of old polio um, which we just don't see anymore and I suppose aside from that when they started immunisation against rubella first they started by catching up 
teenage girls, so about approximately 12-year-olds, mm. and later they they linked it in with measles and mumps to be part of the vaccine that was given after 12 months, so between 12 and 15 months of age when you get your measles, mumps and rubella. rubella. And that's dramatically reduced the number of children born with congenital rubella because of children, sorry, women of childbearing age being immune to rubella. So the reason for vaccination when it comes to rubella is not that the rubella illness itself is so incredibly severe, like, you know, diphtheria is or measles, but because of the possibilities of um, inborn um, defects in babies. So basically immunising the um, female for when she becomes pregnant so she doesn't get German measles, uh, rubella, at that time, which would then harm the fetus. That's exactly yeah. right. And then I thought more, <clears throat> yeah. more sort of in a more contemporary way, if you look at infections such as meningococcal infection, which people have heard of in the community, mm. which causes those large blotchy purple, mm, terrible, yeah. you know, spots and which is, um, either has a high mortality rate or can lead to people losing limbs, yeah. um, during the illness. Although we still do see some cases, the rate of infection has dramatically reduced mm. in all countries in which vaccination has been put on the schedule. So it's something that in my type of work, we don't see anywhere near as much as we used to see. Do you remember when I was learning about meningococcal disease? T- tell me if I've got this right. It, it, it used to happen amongst army recruits or, or people, yeah, a lot. And I used to think, oh, yeah, they're in close proximity. I kind of guessed that, but why wouldn't it happen with other people? And then uh, my boy went on a soccer camp with... 18 of his mates and you can see why i mean they're in you know they're <laughs> they're fighting with each other they're eating each other's plates of food you know their clothes are everywhere they're tumbling over each other and you can see how a communicable disease can just spread like that in that kind of an environment that's exactly right yeah. and, and so vaccination has markedly yeah. changed that now they still if if you look at travel recommendations for people going on pilgrimage to mecca yeah um, the recommendation was to have a meningococcal vaccine. Because there's a lot of people in very close proximity. And, you know, and that, that means that yep. you are potentially... So it has really changed some of the things that we see day-to-day in my line of work. And then the other thing to say is that I think <clears throat> one of the concerns about immunisation is that maybe there's a big brother hand to it mm. and that it is a paternalistic side of medicine and public health. Mm. And the example for that now is that you can't um, access the... Uh, so in terms of objecting to vaccination, only families with fully immunised children or with an approved medical exemption mm. from vaccination can receive family assistance payments like childcare assistance and family tax benefit. Has that and gone through? I, I, yes. Yeah, okay. So conscientious objection mm. is not considered a valid mm. exemption. Mm. So, so I kind of looked up how many people in Australia mm. do we have in this category or that category and mm. basically the data shows that in terms of conscientious objection, the number of children in these mm-hmm. families mm-hmm. is about 30,000 mm-hmm. and in that, that's 30,000 of the population that was supposed to be fully immunised, so mm. it's under 60 months or something mm. of age. Mm. Go ahead. Yeah, so they say that immunisation conferences, they quote a figure of 2% that they're not going to get vaccinated. Yeah, yeah and so this data showed 1.34%, which is very similar to what you said but basically it showed that since about 2011 it's been reducing very slightly from the two percent mark every year the only difference is in queensland 
where it hasn't decreased and it's very slightly increasing. Now, uh, not statistically, you know, not a, not in, in incredible significance, but it's over 2% in Queensland. How does that compare to sort of other developed nations like the States or England, Europe, those places? We actually compare pretty well overall because yeah. if you look at the statistics that we use are the percentage of children fully vaccinated by 12 months, by 24 months, mm. and then by basically five years of age, which is for school entry. Mm. And we do very well where we basically have got about nine, more than 93% of children at 12 months, 91% at 24 months, and I'll explain why that's lower. And then for five-year-olds, it's about 93% overall. So we do pretty well. What we can't account for, if you do your maths, is that 93% vaccinated at school entry, but we've only got less than 2% that are conscientiously objecting to vaccination. So where's the other 5%? <laughs> That's exactly right. That means that there are people that are not objecting because of some other ethical reason. They just slip through the cracks. That's like me because yeah. I filled out my the form incorrectly for my, for, it was my son and, um, you know, it's... It's, a, it's not that complicated. <laughs> but you're filling out the form and you send it back. That was a really lovely email from the immunisation nurse saying, um, dear Mal, look, you, you've, you've ticked both boxes here, <laughs> yes and no, and then you haven't signed the one below. And I'm figuring, yeah, it's it's so easy to let these things slip through. And, and then I sent it back and everything. But I think it might not be conscientious objectives. It might be, ah, oh, you forget, you fill out the wrong box, you're not there on the day, you go one holidays, da da da, da. The, the only thing I wanted to add is that I actually think our registry is <clears throat> really pretty oh, excellent. Oh, it's amazing. And the fact that I get an email to tell yeah. me, by the way, I know that your daughter yep. wasn't at school on the day of year eight vaccination. I'm like, it's how did they impressive. even know that? It is pretty yeah. impressive. Great stuff, Penny. Um, again, you know, we talk about this. We could spend hours talking about this. I had so many great ethical questions to bring up, but we've <laughs> run out of time. So thank you so much, Penny E. Sillam. Thank you, uh, Dr. Jen Phillip, for coming in. Uh, we've got to have you back. Really, really pleasurable and so interesting to talk to you. And EpiPen, it's so good to have you back in your lycra in the studio after cycling all the way around Otago. We're going to leave you with those wonderful scientists from Einsteinagogo. Happy 50th birthday to Dr. Shivago. We're all still recovering this morning. We're going to catch up with you next Sunday morning. Until then, you have a great week as he looks for a button to push. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.